we actually see this big difference between what are kind of shared interest or practitioner communities on the one hand, and then product communities. So this is essentially a difference about where's the center of gravity in the community. Is it about the product or is it actually bringing together a set of people in an industry or a functional type role? You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast. Guys, today we're going to be talking communities. I think one of the things that we've realized is the power of community to convene people, to espouse a brand on behalf of your company, to coalesce all the values that you have and spread them way beyond what your marketing budget can allow. And to do that, we have two of our founders and my colleague, Sia, joining us on, on a panel discussion on this podcast panel. I don't know how you PD podcast panel. Um, talking about communities. On the founder side, we have Jonathan from CrowdDev, Kieran from Outverse. Kieran also had the privilege of working, and I had the joy of working with Kieran at SeedCamp. And of course, I, I should introduce my partner, Sia. Sia has been with us almost a decade now, right, Sia? That's right, oh, a decade in Jan. Sia, remind me, what was the startup that you were working on before you joined SeedCamp? Yeah, it actually had a community element. It was a pretty simple consumer application that uh, allowed people to discover awesome places. Nice. Well, there you have it. We've had some great people join Seedcamp, and I love that Sia joined us from his time as an entrepreneur and now has been with us almost a decade. And he'll be pausing for now as we hear the stories of Kieran and Jonathan, but we'll come back to him. But let's kick off with you, Kieran. I'd love to hear your story even before Seedcamp, what you studied, what was your first job, and then why now, Chris? Absolutely. And it's exciting to be here on the other side of the table. I actually used to edit the Seacamp podcast for a couple of months as well. So really, really full circle uh, now. So yeah, I grew up in a seaside town. I like to think I also grew up on the internet quite a lot. Essentially, you know, age 9, 10, 11, hanging out on online forums and IRC channels and this sort of thing when there wasn't much to do uh, elsewhere. I started basically yeah, hanging out in kind of gaming forums. And there was a really interesting kind of subculture around these, right? Especially as early forms of internet communities and through that actually got into like graphic design. There was a whole subculture or tradition of, of creating internet signatures and forum signatures. And this really just exploded my interest in like product and design and all this kind of thing from like a really young age. So that was a really, really big, big important thread. Basically before looking what, what, what should I do at, at university, I had pretty broad interests. Um, a little bit jealous of those in the US where there's a liberal arts tradition and a humanities tradition because I uh, you know, had an interest in a whole bunch of things. I decided to study philosophy, politics, economics here in the UK and in, in Oxford. I actually met my co-founder Jelani there at Oxford. We met actually at summer school just before university and got on like a house on fire. And that would have been, I think, probably 2011. Towards the end of my time there, I enjoyed that degree quite a lot. I, I think the really interesting thing was philosophy in particular and the conceptual precision that, that this had and, and this kind of like way of viewing the world was, yeah, really, really, really good fit for me. And I, I think it introduces a a super interesting lens with which to view the world that has been, um, for me, super valuable since. But coming towards the end of my studies, I was looking at, okay, what, what do I do in the working world? I, I had a really strong interest in journalism and media, actually. So I think towards the end of my studies, that was the thing I was looking at. I was thinking I'd become, become a journalist and that would be a great way for me to find out all these interesting stories. So I had a particular interest maybe in kind of politics and, and, and business there in particular and technology journalism. So I get to the end of my studies, kind of start doing some internships there, et cetera. 
But that kind of journalism world was a little bit imploding as I enter, right? There's huge layoffs across the newspapers where I had some internships, so The Guardian, The Independent, and um, just this culture of pessimism you can see seeping in. This is a little bit before the massive rise of kind of Substack and all this sort of thing and, and more citizen journalism. But looking at that, I took stock a bit and was like, is this, is this really what I want to dedicate the, the rest of my life to? It's going to be kind of a slog. And, and actually, as I said before, the rise of kind of like Substack and, and individual voices for, for writers, it was a, a little bit basically an industry in transition. So I was like, uh, what am I most interested in? And harking back to kind of, again, early days growing up the internet, it was products. This is the stuff that fascinated me the most and online communities and culture and, and just actually looking at the future and helping make it. So I became really interested in looking at what was happening in startup world. And I came across, obviously, Seedcamp, which is at the nexus point, obviously, as we know, of the European ecosystem and beyond and came across Seedcamp as an organization ju just basically through research that I was looking at and in and around the space, like who, who had backed some of these companies that I want to go work for. I thought the route should be, okay, if I want to move into the kind of tech and startup industry, maybe I'll go work for like an early stage company and that would be the best route. Taking a look at all the companies, I was seeing that Seedcamp was investing in a lot of them, true story. Um, so I thought that would be an amazing routine, um, applied for the, the internship that would have been 2016 heady days. And yeah, it was a great fit with the team I uh, joined, I think it would have been about October, 2016. So this is about a year or so after leaving university and yeah, it was just a really, really great fit with the, the team. And just for me, yeah, obviously the, the kind of formative professional experience I had. And I, I think it's not just that the Seacamp team who are amazing, Carlos is obviously on this call, but. And everyone else, Tom, Sia, Natasha, Miguel, et cetera, the rest of them are all, all just amazing people. But that whole kind of universe of, of founders at Seacamp is backed and the exposure there is, was just incredible, really, is up-leveling your horizontal picture of, okay, what does it take to make a great company? What's the sort of like pattern recognition among this? And uh, yeah, exciting. Some of the companies we backed during my time at Seacamp have, have gone on to invest in Seacamp. So founders of Ben oh. and Ninefin and, and so rare. But yeah, I had an amazing, amazing couple of years. For the listeners, we didn't ask Kieran to say all these nice things. So I'm, I'm glad that he's got fond memories. Uh, we miss you, Kieran. But, you know, I think one of the things that you did while you were at Seedcamp was managing some of the community of founders and everything. And, and I'm curious if that influenced you in the creation of Alphurst. Totally. I mean, looking back between 2016 and 2021, which is when I founded Outverse, there was obviously a huge paradigm shift and the way in which companies were built and brand and go to market, et cetera. And I would absolutely say that kind of one of the biggest trends there was essentially this move towards product-led growth, meaning we've moved away from he heavy enterprise sales cycles and there's a customer success manager and there's an account rep and all this sort of thing towards actually there's this empowerment of, of consumers and users of, of, of products and, and they're self-serving themselves much more directly. And, and this move towards product-led growth, I think the perfect complement towards that was this idea of, of, of community actually. So community as support channel and, and community growth as well. And I think it was fascinating during my time there, just seeing actually the hallmark of a lot of the most successful companies were leveraging community in really interesting ways, both at the early stage and then also at the very large scale. So I think actually one of the strongest examples being a UI path, right? And that was an absolutely critical ingredient to their success was this amazing ecosystem of practitioners in and around the product that they were able to cultivate from very, very early on. And 
that allowed them to own the category in, in such a dominant way. Obviously, this, this idea of community as a, as a support channel, as a complement to growth, et cetera, um, has been around for a while. I mean, I actually started as, I'm sure we'll discuss in, in like developer facing products primarily, but this culture was moving into all, all kinds of products and consumer products and companies were, were setting up community like very, very, very early in their life cycle. So I was obviously seeing that and that was a big influence in, in, in my thinking and, and harking back to kind of my early origins and interest in, in community building. I thought that was fascinating. And it seemed that the state of the art for what companies were doing was, okay, um, I'll set up a Slack, I'll, I'll set up a Discord. And then these are just entirely imperfect solutions. Like they can work for certain kinds of companies, but uh, you know, Slack is an actively kind of community hostile product. So it's built for the workplace, whereas Discord is a consumer social product and it's a great product. I have used it a lot in a, in a kind of social context, but it's not built for building large scale external communities in and around a business or a product. So there are lot, lots of these kind of thoughts percolating in my head around these kind of trends, et cetera. And speaking to my very, very closest friends, Jelani, who I studied with at university, and my friend Ollie, who worked with Jelani at a company called Tab, which is a YC back payments and travel business, you know, they're absolutely convinced of this from the other side, which is that as a product person, as an engineer, when trying new tools and um, new products, the kind of route to looking at these and adopting these is to go via the community, is to see, okay, what's the kind of authentic conversation in and around these products? Does what's going on in the community look like it kind of is similar to my use case? Like how close is this company and team to its users? Because obviously if they are, then that's a great reflection on the kind of brand and style of company building. So yeah, we, we were super excited to just kind of double down. And for me, it was a really tough decision leaving C-Camp. Uh, again, it was like, I'm not paid sales, but you know, one of the definitely best venture teams uh, not in Europe and in, in, in the world, but yeah, it was a, it was a once in a blue moon opportunity to have this kind of right timing with two people I hugely rated, hugely respect and, and who I have very complimentary working styles and interests with, and that we decided to go all in. And so, yeah, that was the early origins of, of Outverse. So there's a, a couple of really interesting points you made there, Kieran, that I want to summarize. One of them is the idea of community hostile software. It's such a well-phrased thing, right? It makes me think about how much community is a context-dependent thing. Like we think about it as this abstract thing that you sort of aggregate through communication, but where you communicate matters, right? You think about free software, you had biker get-togethers for Harley-Davidson followers, which are community, one of the strongest out there is that have, you know, not software as a birthplace. And they meet up at certain places physically. So what are those physical places, right? And those physical places have certain attributes. They have to have motorcycle parking, for example, right? And so it's interesting as we've seen software develop that caters to different communities, as you said, Discord, gaming, uh, Slack, well, clearly for people who are, you know, masochistic. And then you have what you're building, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but you would say is a little bit more of a Swiss Army knife for a broader base of communities, but thinking about the elements that are most important in communities. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, you're exactly right. So Outverse is a platform that essentially enables companies to support their users and allows them to support their users via community. And that's the kind of most important element there. You're, you're exactly right. That element of what you call it, Swiss Army knife of, of configurability is really, really important to us. Again, like taking it back to what the early... <laughs> 2000s internet communities look like, right? It was, some of these were weird, weird places, but there was something quite idiosyncratic about how they looked and were built and, and they felt almost like neighborhoods to yeah, a certain extent. And the culture, the, that was the culture. Exactly. So you, you identified we, with it. We want to, we, we want to bring that kind of configurability absolutely into how 
companies today build out their communities. So that's super, super important to us. But you're exactly right. The place, the outlet, the home where you build your community is, has, has huge consequences for how people interact and the sort of the communication norms, et cetera, on those kinds of platforms as, uh, as we'll go into. I'm going to come back to this idea of the tool stack for communities. I uh, see as during the panel, I, I'm going to ask you that question. I know as, as you've explored some of these things before, but I think what's interesting is that within this multi-type of community landscape, the developer community has been one of those that has risen to the top as almost the flag of software and how it can be amazing at bringing together people to help build something, to do something, to espouse something, to collaborate with something, which is, you know, previously communities might have been fans, maybe consumers, but not necessarily contributors to the very, very development of software. And that's where you come in, Jonathan. So I wanted you to, same as Karen, tell us your story, how you got to building what you're doing. And a little bit about what you do, and for obviously you're doing it for a very specific set of group of people, not as broad as Karen, but why it needs to look different. Yes, sure. And also very excited to be here. Thank you for the invite. A bit of background on myself. I'm Jonathan, one of the two founders of Crowddesk, and I originally have a background in economics and software engineering, and I've been building and growing software products for the last five years or so. And I was the first go-to-market hire at a developer tool company where I basically built marketing and sales from scratch. And I think similar to what Karen described from a VC perspective, I saw those things from an operator perspective because we were starting with a top-down go-to-market approach. We would hire a big sales team, talk to enterprises, like try to push our developer product into those companies. And we noticed how hard it is because... Either we were building a product for developers, they were often like stopping our SaaS processes. If we would sell a product uh, to their company, they would refuse to use it. And overall, it always felt like developers are not really on our side because they couldn't try out our product before. They would first book a demo and go through this whole enterprise process. And that kind of led us to the realization, hey, what we do here actually requires a bottom-up approach. We need to open source parts of our technology and we need to build developer first. And that's basically what we did. So from that point on, community became a big part of our go-to-market strategy. And yeah, me as a person responsible for running marketing and sales at company, um, that became my job to build up our developer community. And yeah, I kind of did all the groundwork there, opened our GitHub repo, opened our Discord server. Because like tools like Outverse didn't exist back then, organized local meetups, online events, even like two conferences. And this was really a pivotal point for the company because we were like starting to see all the benefits that it would have on our business. For example, support would decrease. It was like huge for acquisition because we would get community qualified leads if you want so from the community. We would get better product feedback and just have a closer loop with people. So seeing all that effects of community playing out was really like eye-opening to me. But at the same time, I was also struggling with really measuring the impact that community would have. And if you talk to, to people in the industry, pretty much everyone describes that to you that feels like the community is super valuable, important, but it's, it's very hard to put numbers behind it, right? And... Yeah, that's how I, how I got to the idea of Crowdesk because even back then, you know, I was 
basically just building something in-house, just your simple database where I just put in the people that, for example, start our GitHub repo and then try to figure out, hey, for which companies do those people actually work. So I could then later make the attribution and say, hey, all these deals in our pipeline that actually were like generated through the work that we do with our community team here. But there was no solutions for that on the market. So that's basically where I like, yeah, started to see opportunity for it, quit my job and teamed up with my co-founder, Joan, and started building founders. Joan's perspective also very similar to current story and kind of was a very active developer in the source community and also saw it from the other side using many open source products and contributing to many open source communities. So yeah, we basically teamed up and started building CrowdDesk. And what CrowdDesk is basically doing is what we today call a developer data platform that lets companies centralize all the touch points that developers have with their community, but also their product, their commercial channels, and, and basically any other data source. So we pull first up data from sources like GitHub, Discord, Twitter, et cetera, normalize it, match up the entities, enrich it with third-party data. And the result is really like a unified 360 view of developers. So you can understand who's engaging with me, or which companies do their work, where do they stand in their personal customer journey. And that helps companies to really drive business value from community. So in a way, you could think of it as a backbone of community. One outburst, for example, I guess, rather what we describe as a front end of the community stack. And yeah, I mean, there are about a thousand developer tool companies use CrowdDev today, and some of them manage the largest developer communities in the world. For example, the developer community of the Linux Foundation, small team still working remotely across Europe and yeah, obviously back by Camp. Nice. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for that kind of intro. So I, I want to start moving on to some of the, the questions around community. I think, as I mentioned to you guys at the start, I'd love for somebody who's listening to this for the first time to walk away with tangible advice on what to think about their community, since you guys have seen so many. But I think as with most things, you, you probably should go to first principles and define what we're talking about, right? And and the community is something that sometimes people misuse. I've seen it on Instagram ads that target me. They'll say like our community. And I actually, I'm like, no, no, I'm just a customer. There's, there's no touch point. For me. Like, I don't know what you're referring to as a community. So I wanted to ask a, a series of quick fire questions. Uh, feel free to jump in. It's going to be like a clamoring for whoever comes in first. But I would like to see, first of all, who, which one of you wants to define what's the difference between community and simply a customer? And why do companies get that wrong all the time? So I think the difference is community is that two-way relationship, right? It's different from social media and from your traditional marketing in the sense that community is about companies speaking to their customers and their users uh, and users and customers speaking with and to the company as well. And then there's also sets of relationships with the users to themselves. So that's the primary difference, right? It's not the same as your more traditional marketing channels or traditional support channels where it's very top-down. It's the company speaking towards the user. It, there's that different kind of two-way element that distinguishes it, basically. Nice. See, so, did you have any thoughts? Yeah, I think, you know, in, when, it, when it comes to community, there's, for me, a sense of belonging that comes into play. When you think about community as a social unit, there might be some norms that are defined by maybe the community leader or the founders. And so 
those are the interesting artifacts that we see, like also some of our companies start to play with. Nice. Jonathan, anything you want to add to the definition? Yeah, one thing I would add is that you really only have a community that goes beyond just using your product. I think if you just have a place where people ask questions about your product, you have another support channel. But if you manage to unite people based on like shared beliefs, and they also talk about things unrelated to you, then you can really talk about a community. Some people that might be listening to this might have elements of a potential community. And they just haven't thought about planning for it. So think about it. I'm going to pick an example because I think the open source community kind of knows, hey, I'm starting an open source project. I'm going to enter into a social relationship via GitHub. Whereas if you're a more traditional company, like a consumer goods company, you might have many people who are buying your product, but you haven't yet thought about how and when to plan the community and when to activate it. So what advice do you have for non-open source communities that are thinking about, well, do I do it when I've sold 100 units, uh, 10,000 units? Do I create a forum and there's like crickets in this forum because nobody's there? How do you guys think about it? Maybe, Karen, you, you give it a go. Yeah, I think um, one of the biggest things we see speaking to, to companies and, and founders is this temptation to put it off and think there will be this perfect time in the future to build a community and that'll be in eight months or one year's time. If, if they have a board, it will come up as a board level item, but it won't be executed on, et cetera. There can be this real hesitancy around actually starting to do it. And I understand that because there's a, there's a real vulnerability in setting up a community because you're scared. Okay, what happens if there's just tumbleweed? Then what happens if no one joins? And, uh, you know, that's embarrassing. So I totally, totally understand that. But it's almost like that IQ bell curve um, meme, uh, right? Where you've got the, the kind of Jedi master at the end and you've got the person in the middle who's like, I'll wait till I have everything in place and I've got this team member and once we've reached X level of whatever it is, whereas the kind of Jedi is actually set up a community, see what happens. So in general, I would say two things. One is really actually it, it does benefit you to start thinking about it early. But the two is to do that with some level of intentionality. And I think the type of community you set up, there's so many different types of or, or, or different ways in which you can do that. And it depends a lot on the type of business or, or product that you're building. So quite obviously there is a template, there is a recipe for more developer oriented um, products and communities. And there is for sort of crypto companies as, uh, as well. And you can just join one of those and, and see the kind of like recipe book for how those look. And there's some that are just amazing and they have great attributes and you should go into those communities to look at how they operate to, to learn from those. But there's a bit more of a traditional playbook there. I think in the longer tail of kind of like product businesses and software businesses, et cetera, there's so many other different ways you can go. And we actually see this big difference between what are kind of shared interest or practitioner communities on the one hand, and then product communities. So. This is a, essentially a difference about where's the center of gravity in the community. Is it about the product? Is this a community that is brought together because there's a real strong interest in the product and solving questions around it and contributing to that? Or is it actually bringing together a set of people in an industry or a certain kind of function, functional type role? And, and that's more the focus as opposed to the product itself. And obviously there's a kind of hybrid between those. And actually often you see these practitioner communities transition into the product community, and that can be a great kind of call longer term. But kind of between setting those up, I think it would, you know, should, should I set up a practitioner community? Should I set up a product community? I think that sort of the questions, et cetera, there are essentially many folds. So if, if you want to set up a practitioner community, would that make sense? I think where that can work really well is if you're operating in a kind of like vertical where there is a lot of affinity between a sort of like role types. So one of the, the greatest examples of, of this kind of community is, is actually a company called Lattice, which is a, a very, very big kind of HR software business. And 
you know, very early on, they set up a community of practitioners or people in the kind of HR space before actually kind of building a, a product properly. So they, they were doing the two concurrently of here's the community, which is actually much more about kind of HR as a topic level and bringing together people here and then building out the product. And there are some other recent great examples of companies doing that. There's a company, for example, called Focus in, in the US, which is really about sort of product-led sales and, and product-led growth. And they, they set up a, a community super early on, bring together lots of sort of practitioners in and around the space. And that allowed them to get really, really, really close to, to the persona um, and, and actually sort of build from there. So that was an accelerant to, to product market fit, setting up this community. So I think where there's a lot of affinity and you're kind of the persona you're selling to, and there's a very specific industry that you're going after, I think that can make sense, especially if you're a well-networked team or founder. And maybe also if there's some ambiguity in the, in the product you're building, because you can get rapid feedback there, et cetera. I think you have to manage those kinds of communities very delicately so they don't feel like they're just completely being sold to. But there are some great examples of, of people, you know, handling that in a really elegant way. Then as to the... Sorry, sorry, Kieran, carry on. As to the product community, those can also make a lot of sense depending on what you're building. As we said, you can see developer tools companies basically as sort of like product communities. Setting up a, ultimately, like if you're a very successful company or if you're kind of root product market fit, like a product community usually makes a lot of sense. Um, but for the company, the type of company that maybe wants to set that up earlier, I think often it's actually based on the kind of sector that they, they might be building in, right? For example, so if you're kind of like a creative tool, it can often make sense to set up a, a community super early on because this element of decentralized education and user support, et cetera. If you're a, a sort of productivity tool and you have uh, a, an audience of, of users who are super animated about what you're building and want to contribute to that, I think setting up a product community early on can also make a, a lot of sense. Um, but you should definitely, as you look to, to build a community, have a kind of hypothesis about which one this is. I think often there's some ambiguity and, and that is where people can often fall short. And there's often a good mix of the two, but you should be quite clear early on, okay, what yeah. is my hypothesis around how I'm bringing people together and what it's there to do? Yeah, I like that definition of practitioner versus product community and, and the intentionality of, of which one of those two. Um, I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that, Sia. If not, I would love to hear your views on what you have seen some of our companies do when they start down this path. But while you're thinking that, since it's a bit unfair for me to drop that heavy one on you, I wanted to switch quickly before we come back to that to Jonathan, um, because I came up with a title for this question, which is heroes versus nutters. You're probably dealing with some highly influential people within, let's say, an open source project or within a, a micro community. And some of those people come with baggage. Some people might have amazing development skills or amazing product insights, but then they'll have extremely strange views on politics or other things, in which case it's a fine balance between who you empower within your community and, and who you choose not to and how do you manage those early heroes versus some people who can become difficult uh, down the road. And so how do you encourage um, open source projects and, and leaders in, of communities to, to think about that very first two, three, four, five, 10, 15 heroes or nutters. Yeah, I mean, usually what we see um, among the companies that we work with is that they really lead by example. So if you like start a project and you're just super positive in your communication, usually it's for spread and as well attract other people that kind of share that mindset. I think usually the kind of communities that, that are a bit toxic are usually the ones where either people don't really lead by example or they don't set really clear boundaries to people. So usually what most open source 
can we just do at some point is set up a code of conduct. And then it's obviously really important to enforce that on people. So that might mean that you have to ban somebody from your community, even like some contributor. But um, yeah, I think it's very important to lead by example, set clear boundaries, and then also act on it. But how much do you have to preliminarily choose who you encourage certain people to join and discourage others? How much of it are you meddling really with the community versus just letting it organically develop and then setting a framework? But sometimes frameworks, people break them and then you're now stuck with the yeah. how, how do you engineer that? I, or do you not engineer it? I mean, I'm just curious. I, I haven't really seen examples of like companies engineering that upfront that you say, oh no, you have to go for a personality test to join a community or something like that. But I think there's something very interesting about how different kinds of communities attract different kinds of people. I think, for example, about a super based community, the whole social media communication, everything is just about memes and having fun. And therefore engineers who kind of share that mindset join the super based community. Like somebody who doesn't find memes uh, funny wouldn't join a super based community because it's silly. So I think in that way, like really the way how you communicate on your community website, uh, on your social and community channels, I think that has such a big impact on what kind of people stick because yeah, maybe people join in, but then they read the first messages and they're like, okay, this community is not for me. I just think people have a feeling for that very quickly. And, um, yeah, I think it doesn't happen that often that people with like fundamentally different beliefs and values stick in a community. And if they do, and if they show behavior that you don't want to have there, you just need to act on it. Fair, fair. Um, see, so yeah, I don't know if you wanted to comment on some of the previous points about building and designing a community from the start across practitioner versus product branches and, or on how to manage those early heroes or nutters. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, what we've seen also with some of our portfolio companies that back to the point Kieran was making around the intentionality, you do need to, from the get-go, pretty much apply some level of formalization to your community effort. And, you know, their consistency, that's why I was referring to rituals before, like having maybe the founder come every day at the same hour, do ask me anything session, those kind of things do really help set the tone initially. There's definitely a challenge around how with the community scaling, you Deep, this almost like feeling of uh, personal relatedness, because when there is that feeling of personal relatedness, usually people end up behaving in a better way and being nicer with each other. Once it starts to really be, you know, a community that operates at a large scale with lots of members, it can be challenging to keep that. I've uh, seen, for example, in the case of uh, So Rare, how early on, they very much tried to just through, in their case, the structure of their discord, just break down the different types of conversation that could happen in their community across various channels, etc. And interestingly, also at the point where they were scaling even to other sports, they took the decision to launch new discord servers for like, for example, the community of NBA fans or like the community of baseball fans, because even if obviously football fans come in all uh, uh, shapes and form and with uh, different personalities and all that, 
they had one common interest that was strong enough to keep them all throughout like a structure of channels, et cetera, in one Discord server. But like the even, you know, tone, cultural affinities and all that of many fans of some of those US ports they extended to was very different and they didn't want to mix that. And I think that it was actually not an easy decision for them. They had to reflect on that for a while on if it made sense to break it down in those three different sub communities or not. And the extent to which also then often what you do on the community side reflects also what you will do on social media. And so there also they had to break it down and speak differently to each of those communities. And so there are definitely challenges that come with scaling. And as you scale, you move from just this group of early adopters that uh, will really be often deeply passionate about what you're building and will also early on, because they know you are a small team, will just have a more maybe caring approach to the way they contribute to the community to, as you scale, like expectations from investors increase, but also obviously expectations from your community members. And it's not always easy to deal with that uh, for companies. And I mean, clearly, you know, in the case of SoRare, uh, that has come with challenges, especially because in the case of SoRare, there's also a monetary element to their platform that comes into play. And as we know, when it comes to like money, humans can have pretty abrasive reactions if like things don't go as fast as they want in the direction they want. So yeah, it's a uh, it good examples of, especially the Sora examples, there's a couple of really good examples of practitioner versus product. So Sora seems to have done both, right? Like fan mm -hmm. being practitioners, product being the product they sell. I think you also talked a little bit about the segmentation. And I wanted to go into that a little bit because that segmentation is important when you're a growing company but also early days, depending on the types of products you have and the impact that can have on your expectations for success. So I wanted to get your thoughts, Johnson and Kieran, on what the success metric should be early days for a community. Because in many cases, depending on which one you've chosen, Kieran, to your model of practitioner versus product, it's not clear that you're going to have anything really other than just, oh, there was a couple of threads or something. So how should you measure success early, mid, and later in a company's life according to you guys. Karen. Absolutely. I also just wanted to pull a, a thread from what Sia was saying there about this idea of having kind of different channels or maybe a multi-community stack because you're, you're, you're exactly right. And actually what you see with some great examples of very community-led companies is this idea that they, they will have different communities that are serving different purposes. So for example, OpenAI, they've obviously been in the news a lot, but OpenAI has, um, for example, a, a Discord and it has an online, more developer-oriented community as well. And so those are serving sort of two different purposes. They have different cultural norms. The Discord obviously being a, a good channel for more their, their users to kind of come in and some like very vibrant like social discussion, whereas the developer forum that they have is obviously actually a much more structured outlet for kind of support high quality feedback on the product and also for certain users that they will have, you know, then I'm going to go to a Discord. So having this developer forum makes a lot of sense. And actually, we see a lot of companies do this multi-community thing. So not just OpenAI, there are companies, for example, there's a company called Glide in the US, which is one of the top kind of no-code platforms. You know, they have a Slack, I think, for their experts. And so 
the, the reason for that is again, Slack is a, you know, it's great for the kind of more conversational dynamics and so on, but they also have a public forum and the public forum is again, great for that role of user support and allowing and people maybe have their own problems to search the repository of previous stuff and see actually is has someone encountered this problem before and is um, a great support channel for them and actually a, a kind of great brand magnet for them. But I just wanted to pick up on that quickly. I think products like CrowdDev are, are amazing for obviously allowing you to, to quantify success. So I'll let kind of Jonathan cover more of that. But in terms of what we see at Outverse, we're kind of mainly focused, I would say, more on those support-related communities. So it's for that high-quality, structured support of your users, allowing for this kind of self-serve by seeing answers to other questions and using the community as the first part of call for product related questions that they have. And um, I, th I think there's absolutely kind of quantification you can do over there, which is basically to look at, okay, the difference with kind of time to solution in the community and time to solution over email or whatever kind of support channels you're looking at, and also the volume of support queries that are coming through either. And then just tracking that over time can give you a good sense of how things are looking. It's a art more than a science, but I think just like quantifying that early on can make a lot of sense, but it does take a lot of time for this stuff to come through and prove your hypothesis or, or not. Yeah, I think that's a good point, um, Karen, before I come to you, Jonathan, um, is this idea of with something like support, you can't quantify it because you're replacing effectively service agents and in your company and you can qualify how many service agents would be required to have an equivalent level of service. I think where it gets really interesting is this idea of a sort of marketing, you know, that, and, and I think of communities as a form of marketplace, except what's being exchanged here is information and, and sort of kudos and some of the cultural artifacts. But then maybe one metric, if I can jump in here, is just to say that liquidity, liquidity of conversation, you know, if, if you have a low liquidity conversation, and I think for most online things, it's like if it's a day and you haven't really added to that conversation or you let it linger. And then our reason why I'm laying this foundation, and you might agree or disagree a day, two days, three days, but the reason I'm adding this is because I want to ask you a follow-up question after I hear Jonathan on metrics is how much time do you spend as founders in these early days getting liquidity of that basis community, especially your own products? So before we go to that, Jonathan, walk us through what you guys look for, track, and recommend for metrics. Yeah, I mean, we... Obviously get that question several times every week. And I think my answer is always, it depends because it really depends on why you started building community in the first place. And I think if you do it right, then you first define, Hey, this is the business objective that we want to achieve with community building. And then you work backwards to, Hey, which metric do we want to look at? If you're building a community who basically do support, then yeah, I mean, we talked about those metrics, right? Having less support tickets, having a faster response time, all these kind of things are great to measure. If you're building a community for go-to-market purposes, maybe look at community for qualified leads, look at how many deals you can attribute to your community, look at do deals close faster if they had activity in our community first. Yeah, there's like a bunch of things that you can do there and that we have with if you're building a community to build better product, measure how many feature ideas came from your community. So it's really like for the different kind of things that you can get out of a community, different kind of metrics that you can define after. And usually if you talk to early stage companies, they tell you, yeah, we want to have all of that. We want to have go-to-market support, product, we want to hire people from the community, all these things. And I think that's usually a mistake, but I always recommend like, hey, really pick one thing that you want to get out of your community and then optimize for it. I often think that community is a lot like company building, because if you just try to do everything at once, you're most likely going to fail. So like also for community building, 
having a focus, for example, hey, we want to build a community to have a better support experience for our users. Great. And then just focus on that and then also pick the right metrics for it. So yeah, I think that's my take on metrics. See you. Yeah, it's a challenging area, to be honest, having worked also with uh, quite a few of our open source portfolio companies. I mean, that's why we were very receptive to the pitch of Jonathan, because we saw how like those founders had often in terms of pure size of their community already managed in a short amount of time to gain significant traction, but their actual level of insight into who was in that community was extremely low. And it's just related to the fact that, you know, uh, if you are a company starting with uh, like, what is a, a, for an open source project at the end, you can't capture all the data around engagement and time spent in your product and all that, that you would have in a typical SaaS platform. And then it comes down to, okay, based on less rich data you're dealing with, how can you still get a picture of who is active? who you could potentially double down on, who could maybe in the short or midterm convert to like paid users because you're like starting to think about what your paid offering would look like. And that's, I think, where a platform like CrowdDev can play a significant role to guide you into how you, you would get richer information around that early traction you're gaining. And I think when it comes to those KPIs or goals that you would have, as a company, I mean, sometimes we see with slow founders, like maybe having the wrong expectations of what would be actually achievable via their community effort. For example, for a lot of our developer tooling companies, the truth is that it's actually very rare that we see contributions from the community on the core of their offering. The contributions would be uh, rather for example, when it comes to building extensions and plugins and all that for their core product. And so knowing that, yes, you might have this large community, but at the end of the day, it's only going to be a small number of community members who will contribute with actual contribution to the product. And that's okay. And that those contributions might also not be like to the core of what you do. And they might not be the things that you had yourself prioritized in your roadmap short term, but that they are still valuable and that they should be rewarded. And also being conscious that at the end of the day, if you decide to invest in your community, I mean, yes, you want to have some accountability to make sure you are spending your time smartly, but it's also an effort that is taking time to fully pay back. I think. We are very conscious when we invest in, for example, open source companies that, you know, the, the effort they put like upfront comes also at the, at the cost in the sense that uh, it's a trade-off and often those companies in their first two years might not show the same level of revenue traction as their peers that might not have done this like upfront investment in community, but down the line, uh, it does usually result in a much more efficient go-to-market motion. So it allows you to really almost have those product-led dynamics while closing sometimes like enterprise-sized contracts 
And, and that's when it does work like that. Yeah. It does feel a bit magical. And that's why we are excited by companies that do invest early on in their community effort. But uh, hey, maybe that uh, actually with like uh, OpenAI and some of the latest developments uh, on that front, some of the qualitative element of judging community health are also going to evolve over the coming years. In the sense that rather than doing, you know, once a month, like NPS check on your community. And I know, for example, that some of the community leads at portfolio companies would almost have this game of based on their firsthand feeling of what's going on in the community, trying with their team to predict what this call would be, and then seeing if indeed the NPS survey does reflect their own perception of how healthy the community has been or not. But I do think that there are probably solutions, tools being built today that uh, will allow you to capture those insights around the general sentiment and all that and cut the noise more effectively than just by having every six weeks a survey going to your user base, et cetera. And clearly, I think, you know, Jonathan and his team also are, are working on things that can help on that front. So yeah, I want to come back to you after this next question to highlight what do you recommend for founders reporting or presenting to investors to highlight their community, right? So either what you recommend for founders pitching and how they should talk about their community versus revenues, because I think you made a very interesting point and one that I want to dig into is this trade-off between revenue early on versus community early on, but that will pay back later. So how do you represent that? Not only in pitch, but also to investors that have invested in you so that it doesn't look like you're wasting your time. So I'll come back to you on that one. But first, Jonathan, Karen, I wanted to talk a little bit about human resources. Ultimately, you guys are the human resources of your companies and how much time you spend building your own communities. And of course, you have people building with your tools, their own communities. But maybe for this one, answer from your personal point of view. You know, we were talking earlier about communities are norms. There are social elements. There's artifacts of those communities. There's little habits that you can lead on. How much do you spend time as individuals in building out your individual communities? And at what point are you considering to delegate that to a community lead? Because you have other things to do. So I, I want to understand that transition for you and what you recommend to other founders going through that same equivalent transition. Jonathan. Yeah. Um, first of all, I think in a way, almost every single founder does. It's kind of related to community building. If you think about it, our primary jobs, sales, recruiting, fundraising, all these kind of things mean bringing people together behind the idea of your company. So you could almost say that, you know, as a founder, you, you can't help but build community in a way. If it comes down to how much time you really dedicate to, let's say, host, ask me anything, questions, how much time you spend on answering questions in your Discord, etc. I would say as much as possible or as much as necessary better because in the early days I was like very much on top of this core and like trying to get back always immediately to people. And then obviously over time the team grew and also other people started to answer questions. Other people started to jump in and then I definitely reduced my airtime in the community a little bit, but I think it's important to always reserve a bit of time for it. Honestly, it also doesn't necessarily feel like work because it's just engaging with the people in the community and it's a fun task for me that I also don't mind doing late in the day. Yeah, Jonathan, I, I want to dig deeper into your answer because right now the way you've answered it sounds like you've effectively went through a series of growth. Now you're slowly letting other people answer. 
but there must have been an intentional point there where you empowered somebody else to sort of represent some of the key themes that you considered important that you could no longer spend time on. So did, was that intentional or was it just like it just sort of organically happened? And Karen, I'm going to ask you the same question, so you might as well just answer it when, when we come to you. Yeah, I mean, we intentionally always taught all people in our team to engage our community. And there was definitely a time or two where we told people like, hey, could somebody else get back to this or something like that? And now it's just about like support. But we, for example, at the beginning, we had a routine in the team that every week somebody else would have their community hat on and they would be your team kind of as their community mindset. And if you ask me about what, at what time we, we did that kind of switch, I think it was pretty much as soon as we started hiring people it was always kind of very clear in our communication and our company values that we want to put community first and that everyone has to be up to engage with, with our community. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, yeah, that's really interesting. Actually, yeah. just uh, if I could add to that, um, I think we, we've seen actually across uh, our, um, you know, open source developer focused companies and actually upright company that uh, Kieran was so uh, knows well and uh, like worked directly with back when he was at Sitcamp had this uh, similar approach to what Jonathan was describing, where they were very intentional as part of even their hiring around the fact that if you join the upright team and you know, you might join as a backend engineer, but the expectation is very much that everyone would contribute to the content strategy of the company and that everyone will play a role as part of the community that they were building in terms of being there, present, responsive, etc. And I think we've seen that in a few of our developer-focused companies. It's a kind of setup I haven't seen in non-developer-focused companies, which is interesting. Yeah, I, well, I wanted to keep on pushing on this point a little bit because I think that as I listen, I've about put myself in the shoes of somebody who also manages, and we do manage a community within Seedcamp. There's always an issue with assumption of hierarchy, you know, and to some extent you can empower everyone you want, but sometimes the customer wants to talk to Jonathan or to Kieran. And so how do you deal with distributing the, the sort of authority that maybe people attribute to you guys as founders? in the process of that. Maybe Kieran, you can start with there and then also comment a little bit about how you recommend or how you personally in Outfirst manage this early day community building versus other things. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. And again, I think it depends on the orientation and the focus of your community, right? Is it a very support focused community or is this uh, a community where it's actually a lot about product feedback and shaping the product or some combination thereof? Because Different members of your team are differently placed to answer those sorts of questions. And, and sometimes actually the team isn't the best place at scale to do that, right? Which is why having a public community can be super, super interesting and having a kind of product community that any, anyone can access, not even your users can help because there will be cases where if say you have a very niche or specific product and it's actually, well, how, how do I do this very contextually specific thing? Oftentimes it's other users who are best place to answer that. So sometimes actually with this like enablement piece users can be some of the best people kind of coming back to that. And you look at products like, for example, RFs, which is a, um, you know, SEO software, they have quite a vibrant community of their users doing it. So again, it depends on what the kind of questions are, but I think another thing absolutely we see is that it can be a bottleneck. Sometimes this lack of clarity of who answers what, 
Um, because if you start to founder heavy there, um, and there'll become a point where it's not scalable for a founder necessarily to answer each and every question. So having some definition around, okay, well, this is a support question, or this is actually an enablement thing. Who should be coming in there can be obviously really, really, really helpful, but obviously just leading by example is important there. And then just actually setting kind of ground rules with the team as to who does what here. You mentioned hiring for that. Sometimes this can emerge more organically with team members, like who is able actually to engage naturally with kind of people in this format. And that's not always obvious necessarily when you're hiring someone and and that comes out more naturally in, in the course of things. But yeah, I mean, as to the frequency with which, you know, we're in the community ourselves and looking at stuff. So what we've set up basically is more of a product and support community that, that we have. So, and actually one point I'd like to make is that, um, I think people can set their level of expectations sort of too high for what the level of communication should be in our community. You asked earlier, Carlos, should liquidity of discussions be the sort of the, the North Star? Actually, I don't think it should, if you're building a, a kind of like more support product related community, because certainly having. A, a decent level of questions and answers in there is, is, is a good sign. But uh, if it's about support and you're having a lot of people like needing to ask stuff, then that's probably also like a bad thing. So there's a bit of nuance there, actually. As, as an aside, I think t- taking like UiPath, for example, right? As to the power of doing support in this kind of community-led way, I, I, th- I think it was probably at the time of their IPO or a piece of data that came out like afterwards. But I think it was something like 70, 80% of the traffic to UiPath was actually to their community and to their knowledge base. And you can see like a knowledge-based documentation, I think very much is an extension of community, but that shows you something about what the community is doing and, and how it's serving that. But I think people should be more realistic about goals and, and frequency and actually like support communities have different retention attributes and activity attributes compared to say like a community that's more geared towards, yeah, like those practitioner communities or where there's more of a kind of social aspect. Um, so it really can, again, depend on the type of community you're building. But yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the data for, for ourselves, we're in our community daily. It is quite founder-led with myself and my co-founder, Ollie, in terms of coming back to people, et cetera. But that is partly a reflection of the kind of community that we're building, where it's very much focused on product and, and support. And in terms of other teams, kind of we see actually like lots of good teams are, are in daily, right? So, um, I th- uh, but that's not going to be on the weekends, right? So again, it's, there's something really interesting about how you're measuring that and making sure you're expectations are specific to the type of community that you're building. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot, of, lot to unpack there about yeah. how you scale that to keep that quality level up. I just, I just had this image of some of the neo banks out there and their community support and the painful that it can be. But see, I wanted to come back to this question of advice you would give founders. Yeah. I mean, at this stage we invest, the truth is that probably tracking the great progress you've made on the community front will not be something you can represent just in the dashboard. To be honest, uh, yes, you can, if your open source company, look at some vanity metrics, like number of GitHub stars, but you can also then look at maybe number of downloads for the project and how the size of, if you, for example, host your community on Discord, how the size of the community has grown and how maybe there's more and more contributions that developers from the community have made to your GitHub project and all that. But the truth is that also at the stage we invest, it will be about maybe giving a sense for some of the dynamics that you already have in the community and then highlighting some of the more qualitative feedback and insights that you've been able to capture through your community effort. And so some of our companies at the time where they were even going race, like their Series A, were able to show 
just the very genuine reactions from community members who were responding to the announcement of a new feature release that had been long waited. And, and that actually carries a lot of weight in this early phase where you're still pre-revenue and where there's also in terms of just the noise you could get from just the metrics, it doesn't give you really a full picture for maybe, you know, the quality of the contribution. So maybe like the, the number of contributions you had on GitHub has actually been decreasing, but their quality has been significantly improving and you won't be able to show that just with a nice chart or a nice dashboard. So I think it's often come down to reconciling those two aspects. And then the only point I, I wanted to add in terms of this transition from, you know, the founder being extremely active in like leading the community effort to sometimes then having a, a first hire that then, you know, come and, and takes the lead on that to then what we also often see is uh, just uh, the, the company starting to empower more some of the champions in their community, right? And so almost like already giving them a title, be it an ambassador title or whatever it is, and then empowering them to take a more active role that often they already by themselves decided to take, but giving them a bit the tools, even social recognition that now they're part of this like elite group where the expectations is that if you are a new community member, they might make your like uh, first experience in the community better. They might help you all that. Th that often is a very powerful way to amplify the effort of, uh, you know, what is still like uh, often when we, we come on board, very small teams that can have also the capacity to literally be uh, 24 hours, seven day a week, just there responding to every single message that pops in their community. Yeah, deputizing, see, deputizing somebody. Um, all right, so the, the last question, and I think we've covered a lot of ground. I mean, we've covered from the your point of view, from the early days point of view, and I want to go back to something we talked about at the very beginning, which is the tool stack. And one point that you made, Kieran, when we were talking a little bit about the place conversations happen, is you know you have to choose the right context for your customers, right? And so what you're focusing on is very specific. What Jonathan is very specific. So to just get your general thoughts, uh, you know, we'll start with you, Jonathan, you get your general thoughts on how somebody or a company or a founder or anything thinks about the tool stack that they want to do and how that fits into the budgeting of the company. In other words, how much of the money that you've raised percentage wise, you reckon you have to think about being community driven, whether you want to account people's time, whether you want to account software licenses, whether you want to account, um, you know, percentage of the product build. I'd love to hear the tool stack and the budget associated with the tool stack. Yeah. Um, so I think, especially in the early stage, you shouldn't overcomplicate things. Um, I mean, I know companies have set up with a WhatsApp group or a Telegram group or something like that, or even like an email list. So you can start very, very lean just to get going. Um, I think if you're a bit like mid to later stage, it can make sense to start thinking about, Hey, do I want to host my community on an integrated platform like GitHub, or do I want to have a dedicated, uh, place for it? Like, like outbursts. I mean, there's pros and cons, cons to that, but yeah, I think that's a bit what I would recommend from a tool stack, maybe a bit from the, the backend stack. I mean, a tool like CrowdDesk, we usually recommend people, Hey, you can just 
hook it up, get started on a free plan. And where we usually see that it starts to make sense is, you know, if you start to feel like that you don't know every member by yourself and that's like hard for you to overlook things. So there's like starting to be noise. Then it's usually a, a, a good place to start thinking about, hey, how do I automate things? How do I keep overlook? How do I understand that? Because, you know, if you just have 200 people in a Discord, you will probably know everyone in there. But then over time, that gets a bit trickier. So usually you get a feeling for, hey, uh, when do I need to start using a problem like CrowdDesk? And talking about funding. So um, I think actually Inside Partners did a very in interesting survey on that with their portfolio companies last year, where they they got out that 25% of their software portfolio invests into community already. And I think in those companies, the average spending was about 10% of their marketing budget was spent on community pooling and infrastructure. So yeah, that's good to give a ballpark of what other, especially more mature companies spend on the tooling. Um, and yeah, obviously you can argue if that's enough, obviously it might be a bit more if you're in the early stages, but yeah, I think that's kind of what we see. Well, that's good. I mean, it's good to have a number. And so Kieran, now that we have a number, I, I still want to go back to this beginning of the, the question, which is, you know, how do you recommend people think about the tool stack? Which tool stacks do you recommend for different parts of the community? You mentioned certain elements like support versus just coalescing practitioners, for example. So, you know, first of all, where Outburst sits in that, how many community tools do you reckon a company will have? But another important point is community migration. I think Jonathan was talking about this issue of like, oh, start easy. You know, we have that issue internally. See, can't we have some old tools that we wish we could migrate from? But it, it's a huge cost of losing community members if you migrate. So maybe you want to comment on that, Kieran. Absolutely. And um, Jonathan is exactly right that even setting up, for example, a WhatsApp early on for your product can make a lot of sense uh, or a Telegram group, for example. I think it's the balance of a couple of things. I mean, certainly that kind of like flexibility is really, really helpful. And that's one thing to balance. But on the other hand, it's making sure you're not forced or stuck into to a corner kind of like longer term. And there's not too much platform risk with where you're building community. Um, as a preface to that, by the way, it's like really important to note that teams don't have kind of hundred percent control where their community lives and where it hangs out, right? Like you can influence that and you can shape that decision, but depending on what you're building, your users might just be hanging out in a specific place anyway, like a Reddit or their own kind of discord channels or, or wherever it is. And the kind of like, you will be led a little bit by your user base as to the stack. So that's a really important point and you can't like over, over, over engineer it. <clears throat> But in terms of stack, I think, again, it really depends on the sort of product you're building. Again, back to that kind of what's your kind of focus here? What's the hypothesis you have? What kind of jobs the community is built to serve? So I would say that for the kind of early stage companies here listening, like thinking about stack, I would say that you know, if you're a sort of pre-product market fit company and th th there remains some ambiguity in the kind of product that you're building, but you're well-placed to set up a community because you have the kind of like network of, of users in that broad category that you're looking at. I do think something like a Slack or a, or a WhatsApp can can make sense. Again, it really depends like where do your community members hang out because if you're, if you're building for a professional audience, then yes, Slack can make sense because already has you know already people already have that downloaded and um, and so the friction there is limited. Um, it might not make sense if you're more of a kind of consumer oriented product because people don't want to be in Slack um, for for that. So. Yeah, if you're a super, super early stage company and kind of like pre-product market fit and you're thinking about community more with the attention of guiding what you're building, I think those two things can make sense. But if you're more on that journey towards product market fit or 
there is the kind of existing early kind of community you can bring together. There's enough people to do that. And you have a very kind of like product specific lens. I think that's where a product like Outburst makes a lot of sense. You sometimes see communities being built on as well, kind of like likes of Reddit, which I think shows something about this like platform risk with what we saw earlier in the year, the sort of like Reddit blackout. Companies should be like really sensitive to, to the sort of platform risk that they're exposing themselves to. And that's actually just also like to do with the commercial orientation of where they're building the community. Like if you're building on Slack, for example, you might be locking yourself into a little bit of a corner because, you know, Slack is built for the workplace. That's how the kind of product started. And to all extent, Slack doesn't want to support these larger scale kind of communities, right? Their business model is actively kind of against that. And so what you'll find is that if actually the momentum's going and your community is in Slack, you're going to either have to keep it on a free plan, which is just not going to create a lot of value for your users because everything's going to be shunted under um, a 90-day visibility window, or you're going to end up having to pay thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. So you should be really sensitive to, to these kinds of consideration and look towards, I think, actually like owning that real estate much more, which is obviously what we're intending to solve with Outverse and, and allowing people to build their own spaces and configure them much more directly. So um, those are kind of, I think, of a few of the, the kind of considerations there. But again, I re would really say do it intentionally, but, but do it early often makes sense. And you can shift in platforms, as you say, as to the migration piece. And um, I think that the biggest lesson I would say on, on migration from seeing companies do it, um, more, more and more people are, are moving off platforms like Slack is to just very much involve the community in that decision. Um, like I think one of the, the biggest risks you have is, is not alerting them to this fact and, and not getting their feedback on it early. Cause that, that can blow back in, in the face. And as long as that's kind of telegraphed early onto the community and there's like an invitation to feedback around this decision and there's a kind of explanation behind it, I think then that can work really, really well. But we're, I think we'll see lots of communities, lots of products move off of Slack and indeed off of Discord in the coming year. Excellent. Well, thanks for that advice, Kieran. And guys, you've been so generous with your time, but I wanted to make sure Sia had a chance to any concluding thoughts you had on the, on, on the topics we've covered before we start wrapping up. Yeah, you know, it's a very exciting field, right? It's uh, also, a, I think, a nascent field. We, we discussed a bit the infrastructure tooling around community. I think there are also other questions that companies are dealing with in terms of even where the community function feeds in the org chart, you know, a bit around like in some companies we see it sitting with like, you know, the support functions, growth function, uh, or, you know, is it something else like a product or so, because often it's so tied to your product. So I think there are still a lot of things that are, are in terms of tracking of community health, like KPIs, tooling where it sits in the org, a lot of things that are still to be defined. But what is certain is that this trend towards like more consumerization of enterprise software, the, the fact was so that when it comes to any consumer company, you need to like think of that very, very early on. And that's what will make the difference like long-term. Those things are here to stay. And so I think the core message here for founders is really to think about community early on and be intentional about it and really think also about how the effort you will put in could potentially pay back two, three, five years down the line. And then when it comes to the tactics and all that, uh, I think Kieran and Jonathan here shared some great tips and, uh, I know they also both publish some great resources online, so there's a lot we can find there, but I think 
as an investment firm at Sitcamp, we are really, really excited to invest in more companies that have community at the core of what they do. Excellent. Thanks, Sia. Guys, I will share the, the documents and resources that uh, Sia mentioned on the show notes. So look forward to, if you're listening to this, just click on the show notes and you'll see them. Also subscribe to the Seed Count podcast. That'd be great. And thanks again for joining us for this episode on communities. It's been an absolute deep dive. So hopefully you've enjoyed it. So with that, until next time, guys. Bye-bye.